and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore, the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras, and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week, we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. How are you this week? I know mine has started, I'd say, quite well, because I think starting positively with a positive thought in the mind, it is good, especially on a Monday morning, although it may not be Monday for you when you are listening to this. But hey, think of it as first thing in the morning, think something positive and great things should come along. Today's phrase is one that my guest has suggested and feels is particularly relevant to his early life from which he emerged into a brilliant career as a musician and educator. We all have certain phrases that mean a lot to us. Maybe we use them as mottos or just simple reminders about what is important. Whether it's a mantra or just a little thought, always at the back of our mind, a phrase like this may help any of us along. Our phrase is, music is a language. Well, I'm going to start by flipping that phrase around on itself and asking the question, is it, is music a language? Well, the debate has been going on endlessly between music experts, language experts, teachers and philosophers for a long time, and it seems there is no common sense answer. Let's focus in on music and language themselves. That may give us a clue as to whether or not we agree with the statement. I'm going to pick out ideas from here, there and everywhere and juggle them around a bit. Then maybe at the end you can come to your own conclusion. Let's look at language first. How can we define it? The word itself derives from Latin and has to do with the tongue. Indeed, the word tongue, as well as being the name of a muscle, is also a synonym for language. So there's at least part of our definition. We know that most air-breathing animals can produce sounds, but it was long thought that, with our vocal cords, tongues and lips to modify those sounds, humans were the only species to have developed language. It was that ability that separated us from other animals. However, that belief has come under some scrutiny in the last few decades, and our definition of language may have to be much wider. What do you hear? What do you say? Birds, of course, who have no lips, also produce very varied and tuneful sounds. But before we have sensitive microphones and ultrafine electronic analysis, these are thought to be very simple calls for each species. We are now learning that bird song, whale song, and all manner of animal sounds also carry very subtle variations that go far beyond simple courtship or warning cries. Perhaps Dr. Doolittle wasn't so far from the truth. Detailed communication clearly relies on coded messages, whether the code be in sound, color-changing, or as recently discovered, bioluminescence. The more complex the code, the more we recognize it as language, but also the more prone it is to errors. For example, our world of sexual attraction and the signals that we try to send and interpret is fraught with difficulty and confusion. 
As social animals, we're constantly looking for signals, but we're not born with the code. It has to be learned, and more often than not, that is pure guesswork. Even the lack of a particular signal can lead to interpretation. No, but you haven't directly said, like, do you want to go out for dinner? Do you want to go for a drink? Yeah, but neither of you. It's like getting blood out of the stone, isn't it? <laughs> On top of all that, each of us has our own individual ideas about the appropriateness of certain words or behaviours to a given situation. This etiquette, in the case of just the spoken word, is known as register, and it's one of the main clues to membership of a social group, a key to acceptance or rejection. The way we speak and the words we use are possibly the two main clues. All social animals have an us and them way of thinking, or tribalism, from the smallest of groups to the largest. Of course, it leads to closer bonding within a group, but it also creates divisions between us. It's good to be here. Family, this is a stand-up for family. Family's important, nothing more important than family. Ain't that what people say, nothing more important? Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. We all come across jargon. It's a very useful tool, of course, but it also divides us into those who know the code and those who do not know the code. Indeed, in many instances, that can even appear to be its main purpose, to deliberately baffle and appear superior. Yes, well, we prefer the term implementing communication methodologies. Why? Because it sounds more impactful. Oh, um, that's not actually a word. Look, this is the corporate world, Chris. We invent words to unempower those who don't understand them. Unempower isn't a word either. But am I making you feel unempowered? Yep, a little. Good, you're picking up on some key learnings already. Learnings definitely isn't a word. Or, is it? Written languages survive much longer than spoken language. We know this from ancient Sumerian or Egyptian, for example, that belonged to cultures and civilizations long gone. Of course, not every aspect of language can be written. Pronunciation, dialect and accent all override the page, and it's very easy to see that any piece of writing can be read completely differently by two different readers. We actually remember the impact of famous speeches as much from the way they were read as by what was read. The tones, the rhythm, the cadences, the pitch. We might call all of these things musicality or expression. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Another aspect of language is that it constantly evolves. The explosion of emojis in the last decade has made enormous changes to the way that people communicate electronically, showing the process of evolution in action. So the definition of language could be pretty wide. That's what I'm talking about! Well, that's language. What about music? Where does that concept come from and why? Well, quite simply, it's from the Greek word muse. Artists 
often speak of finding their muse as being an enlightening experience, one that opened their eyes to layers of reality they may never have come to otherwise. A muse, in this sense, doesn't have to be a person. The island of Tahiti was muse to the painter Guajin. Tracy Emin's muse was her pet cat while it was alive. The muses of ancient Greece were mythical goddesses. They inspired a person, which literally means breathed into them, so that they could become a conduit for artistic beauty. The person so inspired would feel compelled to use what skill and energy they had to reveal the art, totally focused, driven, obsessed, perhaps possessed, until such times as the muse left them. Perhaps we retain a similar belief today. Rare claims of automatic writing from some authors say that they have merely transcribed the words or musical scores of a spirit guide while in a trance-like state. And of course, we very commonly talk of being called to a particular career or being captivated with an idea. On the dark side, many serial killers have spoken of a guiding force in their killings too, and psychologists have established strong similarities in personality and neural function between all driven people, whether for good or bad. Everyone feels inspired to some degree at times, whether it be to paint a masterpiece or just to sing along to the radio. In ancient Greek tradition, each of the muses had a specific pleasure to impart. By the time of Homer, it was accepted that there were nine of them covering the three endeavors of beauty, performing arts, literature, and knowledge. Birds and whales and bees humming, other animals, trees in the wind, waves on the shore. In fact, almost anything can be described as music if we find it a pleasant sound. But maybe for simplicity, we should restrict ourselves to what we commonly call music. Here's a dictionary definition. Music is the sounds and rhythms produced by instruments and voices and structured, composed and performed with a listener in mind. Now that's what I call music. So is music a language? I'm going to let the question hang in the air for now while I meet and chat with my guest today. He's a composer, a performer, an academic, a social reformer, a teacher, a learner, a mentor, and I am absolutely sure a muse to many students of all ages and abilities of violin players. He is Dr. Emmanuel Abraham. at the Color of Music Festival in Columbia, South Carolina. And I, I had to speak to you because everyone around us actually stopped doing what they were doing to listen to what you had to say during our interview then. And you spoke of such determination and courage and ambition that I simply had to invite you on, metaphorically speaking, to share your strength and your story. Although we don't have a lot of time, I know that our listeners will appreciate what you have to say to them. And I must say that I was surprised when you chose your metaphor, music as a language. So I've given a 
big question, but ultimately it boils down to tell us a little about you and tell us why this metaphor is important to you. Well, absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on uh, on this program. My uh, uh, understanding is the program intends for guests uh, like myself to uh, to share part of their life through a metaphor. And uh, of course, one of the, the, the first metaphor that came to mind immediately um, uh, when you mentioned that uh, was the the age-old metaphor of uh, music being a language. Um, and well, the, the definition of metaphor, you know, coming uh, from, from Grove is a thing uh, regarded as representative or symbolic of something else, especially something abstract from the thing. And the common metaphor of music as a, as a language um, it's a particularly uh, appealing metaphor to me because it's, uh, f first of all, it's, it's both used as a metaphor, but is also uh, centuries after uh, its recorded use has been found to actually be uh, true. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Charles Darwin in his Origin of Species, um, to quote him, and this is a quote I memorized because I used it <laughs> in my dissertation, um, he says, it is probable that the progenitors of man, either males or females or both sexes, before acquiring the power of expressing love in articulate speech, endeavored to charm each other with musical notes and rhythm. And uh, in, essentially, it's what it's saying is that before we uh, uh, evolved the ca capacity to articulate words, we communicated with pitches and tone. Um, to communicate everything, not just love, but I'm hungry, um, danger, etc. This metaphor compares, um, uh, relates my life because my life story is um, is one of going from not having any voice whatsoever um, to having a voice in the language of music. Uh, where I grew up in in uh, inner city Chicago. I was one of 12 siblings, and I grew up in a very small uh, two-bedroom apartment. Um, we slept on very closely spaced uh, uh, triple bunk beds, and because I was on the younger end of the dozen, um, I was never able actually to sit up <laughs> all the way on my bunk. Um, but I always felt like I didn't have a voice. Uh, where I grew up was very dangerous. Um, and as a child, um, uh, bullying was omnipresent. Um, I had uh, been stabbed by a knife. Um, I'd been uh, held still and burned with a lighter. Um, I'd been at gunpoint. Um, and several things happened that I, I wouldn't even uh, relate on this uh, on this show, but it was very um, uh, terrifying and violent. And uh, when music came along, I, I had seen Isaac Perlman uh, performing on Sesame Street, and he made the violin look cool and easy. And uh, one of those was correct. It's a it's a very cool uh, 
instrument. Um, and uh, I saw an ad in a newspaper after begging to, to play the violin. There was an ad in the newspaper for a free lesson at the Merritt School of Music uh, in uh, Chicago's downtown uh, area known as The Loop. And I didn't have a violin, so I went um, to the Salvation Army. I got a violin. It was uh, not in good shape. It was uh, it was in a pillowcase. <clears throat> the bow had almost no hairs on it. The violin had three strings, and it was very barely playable at all. But I brought that to the Merritt School of Music and had my free violin lesson. The teacher said she liked my uh, attitude, and I genuinely seemed to appreciate the music. And so she um, invited me back. How old were you then? I was uh, I was fourteen. I was 14 years old and that age was uh, impactful as well because I music was the first environment that I felt uh, safe in no one was after me and it was also the sensation that I got from it was incredible because not only were people listening to what I was saying in music uh, but I, I had a teacher whose job it was to hear me. It was her job to hear my voice. Uh, and it was her job to help me with my voice. And so this was a place where I was being heard and a place where I didn't have to feel afraid. Um, and so I, I was willing to do anything immediately to keep that, not knowing where it would lead uh, at all, but I, I just loved it. I loved the experience of music immediately. And uh, so I practiced extremely hard. Uh, I was putting in, I started off with uh, two or three hours a day uh, without missing. It, it was everything to me. And because there was no space at home whatsoever to practice, I would either practice um, in intervals of, you know, 15 or 20 minutes in the bathroom because it was the one area that wasn't occupied 24 7 or i would go to a graveyard uh, not far from where i lived and uh, i would nail my music to a tree i kept my I kept a bunch of nails uh buried uh next to the tree and with a hammer and i would just nail the music to the tree and practice there there, was, there wasn't anyone there no one bothered me and um, i just practiced there the teacher said she liked my attitude enough where she would use her lunch break she wasn't getting paid for this. She wasn't getting extra for it, but she just gave her time up to me um, to teach violin. And so I got these, uh, I wound up getting free lessons every week from her for, for months. I got three, maybe four months of free lessons from her. And in that time, um, I had progressed from not being able to read music. She was using the Suzuki violin method, uh, which has 10 volumes. The intention is to bring a complete beginner to a successful college audition. And um, in those first few months, I managed to get from um, a complete beginner through, uh, I was in the middle of book five when the teacher had uh, gotten the attention of the Dean of the Merritt School of Music to um, hear me play. Um, so I had this one-on-one -on -one session with the Dean. 
um, Helen Eaton of the Mary School of Music. And she heard me play and she immediately told me right afterwards, she said that um, if you'll accept you're uh, officially a member of the tuition free conservatory program at the Mary School of Music. And so uh, I joined my first orchestra and I auditioned into a camp called Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp. Uh, I was the first high schooler to, I joined a group called the International Youth Symphony Orchestra, and, which was a group that I couldn't afford. But if you, uh, if you auditioned to be uh, to the chair of Concertmaster, they, uh, the tour was paid for you. And so I practiced even more. My practice went from two to three hours a day to five to sometimes seven hours uh, per day. And I became one of the first high schoolers to uh, ever have that chair of a concertmaster of the International Youth Symphony Orchestra. And I kept that chair for four years in a row. Wow. So that was some time ago. Before I move a little, I just want to find out what was that teacher's name who started you off and helped you? Uh, her uh, her name was Elizabeth Ortiz. I think it's always worth mentioning because, of course, you know, without her, the next steps wouldn't have come. But now you're playing with large orchestras. I met you at Colour of Music Festival. When you were playing during that time, especially that was the first performance after lockdown, how did that feel? Absolutely. The... Um, the performance with the color of music of uh, first of all I'll, I'll include that my my first performances with the uh, with the symphony um, I cried from start to finish because it was it was just an unbelievable feeling of not only everyone being on your side but uh, of having that voice um, really speaking uh, a language but people came to to hear that voice mm -hmm. um so it was, it was like the op the exact opposite of my entire life experience to that point where you had no voice you're getting hurt physically <laughs> mentally emotionally all the time and i was i was an angry child i just i hated i didn't like life i didn't like being alive um and music completely changed that and it put everyone on the same side in the same room and i had i wasn't scared to be there i could play music and i literally i cried the entire time the first symphony i ever played was uh dvorak's new world symphony i, I cried from the, the start mm -hmm. to the end of that the next complete symphony i played was uh, mendelssohn's uh italian symphony that's that symphony number four um cried the entire time through that. Mm -hmm. It was just uh, a beautiful experience. And um, now I've toured the world uh, multiple times. Um, and um, after dozens, uh, dozens and dozens of symphonies, I, I wound up with the uh, Color of Music Orchestra where, where we met. And uh, that experience was in, in some ways, it was very much like my, my first experience with the symphony. But my first experience with the symphony was uh, one of the first times where I felt like I belonged uh, belonged somewhere. I felt like I was, it felt like being among 
family and having a voice with that family. Um, it felt like getting a hug from everyone in the room, which is just a, a beautiful feeling. And the reason the color of music in particular felt that way uh, is because most places where I've gone and most places where I've played, not only if I wasn't the only black male, black person in the room uh, or in the ensemble, um, I was very often the only black male uh, in the ensemble and certainly the only black uh, male string player um, in the ensemble. And some people will look at that uh, who haven't experienced that and say, okay, that's, uh, it's not something that really matters. But if you're, if you're not living that experience, uh, you, you, you don't know. And when you're the only black male in classical music still, um, pe people notice you because you're because you're very often the only one. Mm -hmm. You're alone. Uh, people, you feel all the eyes on you. You can see all the eyes on you. Um, people make comments. People ask questions, and sometimes those comments and questions aren't always nice. I've been I've been called slurs walking into the room of an ensemble uh, more than once. Color of Music was unique because it was the first time where I played in a symphony and the ethnic breakdown had me as part of the majority. Um, and in, in this case, it was everyone in the room. Um, everyone I was performing with was another black person. Uh, and there's that shared experience that comes with being a black person in classical music. Uh, and seeing other black um, artists and and not being the only one of those various demographics, whether it's the ethnicity or gender, uh, et cetera. And that's, uh, it's an added layer of safety. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what music has given me. Uh, being able to speak the language of music has given me um, a feeling of safety, a feeling of confidence, a feeling of uh, most of all having a voice and of being heard. And when you're in a room with all other, where all the other artists are black, um, not only do you have that uh, power of being heard through the language of music, but there's many things that you don't have to say because you know that you share that experience with everyone else. And that's, that's very, it's very special. Emmanuel, I have to say, um, I'm glad that I met you. I, I'm glad that I, I heard your story and uh, your elements of strength. So from being a child, uh, scared, abused, not having a voice, you have now come to a place where you are having your voice heard among your community. And of course, um, I have to congratulate you uh, in terms of your education. I've been saying Emmanuel, but to our listeners, it's uh, Dr. Emmanuel Abraham. So you have done wonders. What would you say to other musicians? Because it is a hard road, lots of dedication, lots of practice and belief in yourself. What would you say to musicians coming up nowadays, classical musicians coming up nowadays in terms of 
being part of the whole scene, getting there and being part of it? If I were to give any uh, advice to classical musicians, uh, aspiring professional classical musicians, I should specify, while it's while it's definitely a uh, dedication and a focus, I can honestly say, loving it as much as I do, um, practice never felt like work to me. The, and that's what enables you to get in uh, four, five, six, sometimes seven hours of practice in a uh, in a day, every day, not skipping days, not skipping three or four days out of the week. When it's your when it's literally your favorite thing to do. So my advice to other musicians would be, if you love it, be about that and find out how much you actually love it. Find out how what it means to you. Define what. Uh, loving the arts means um, and use that information, which is unique to every one of us, to inform your your decision. Um, and if you're going into music, I have no uh, no question, no regret, and quite the opposite and every appreciation possible uh, for having gone into the field of music. And as far as um, more tangible, more objective things we can do to help ourselves get through is to really use that language. Music is a language. Um, and it's not just a metaphor. I like this, this, uh, this metaphor because it's, it's a metaphor that is both a metaphor and literally true. Um, it is a language. And uh, using it to speak is important. There's a lot of artists who uh, will practice, uh, and I know them, I know hundreds of them who practice many hours every day, and they never use that language to actually speak to the masses. Um, and they keep all of that wonderful art behind the closed door of a practice room. Um, you have to reach out. You have to make uh, your connections. And if you don't know how, uh, there's plenty of people, there's plenty of resources that will help you to reach out, that will help you to make connections. Uh, for me, a huge part of uh, reaching out and making connections was uh, through a forum that I made called the Violin Guild. Uh, it's now the largest uh, online uh, forum for uh, both string players and uh, now various companies make deals with me or uh, pay me directly to advertise through the Violin Guild. Luthiers do likewise. Uh, I work uh, with uh, the Eastman Violin Shop, um, the Dario Orchestral String Company, Southwest Strings uh, was one of the first that I worked with and I uh, continue to through this day. Um, all wonderful companies, and those connections were made, uh, and we help each other through the the Violin Guild. Um, and I've, I've met so many string players uh, through that forum, uh, but that's one of many ways that I uh, reach out to my audiences. I'm also a composer, um, and so I don't just write the music, I do everything I can to play it um, and get ensembles together to play the music that I write as well. 
And these are all ways of using the language of music to speak to others um, and be heard. I can, um, I can see that. Well, Emmanuel, thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom. And of course, I wish you all the best and hope to see you again at another classical music, music festival. Absolutely. You too. Thank you again for having me on, Delia. It's been a real pleasure uh, and I'm very grateful. Thank you. We've meandered through some aspects of both language and music. So now let's see what qualities they share and you can decide whether or not that music is a language or not. If any of us were to jot down a list of languages we knew about, it would contain English and French, Spanish and Russian, and so on, the spoken and written languages of different parts of the world. But we now know that dolphins have a language of clicks. Humans have used drums and smoke signals to send messages. And we hear of many other types of languages, computer languages, sign languages, braille, etc. So is music a language? Well, is it a code? If so, it might be a language. Is it a medium for communication? Then it may be a language. Is it open to interpretation and error? Is there subtlety? Languages have these qualities. What about evolution? Does music change over time? If so, it might qualify there too. Can it be written down? That would help the case. And we might add, is it learned? And can it be taught? If the answer is yes to most or all of these questions, then surely music must be a language, mustn't it? So how does music stand up to these criteria? Well, it can obviously be notated. We've all seen musical scores. Before modern recording, music had to be written down or it would be completely transitory. We would still call it music, of course, even if no one hears it other than the person playing or singing, but perhaps writing it down so that it can be reproduced and potentially performed by anyone gives it an extra boost as a language. Is music open to interpretation and does it have subtlety? Well, yes, music can be played badly. Mistakes can be made just as they can in language. And even when played correctly, any musician will say that expression is very important. Usually, indeed, expression is considered much more important than anything else. More than a century ago, it was suggested that the essence of music was silence, and this idea has been taken on board by many composers, most famously by John Cage with his piece 4 minutes and 33 seconds. There is an instrument, and there is a player, but there is no sound, only expression, so the theory goes. Expression in music is as important as it is in spoken language, where poetry and political speeches can be charged with meaning and persuasive power by the way they are said, or alternatively can be read in dull, expressionless monotones. So it is with music. The muse wants it to be played with feeling. And our old song ain't nothing special anymore. So try and one more time with Peter, darling, take it from the top. Let me feel the 
We might also ask, can music be taught? There are generations of adults who are grateful that they were forced to take piano lessons as children because it gave them skills they might never have developed, enabling them to explore their musicianship later purely for pleasure. However, it's not known that the best way to learn any language is to be immersed in it and just pick it up naturally like we do when we're babies. Victor Watton, the author of The Music Lesson, amongst many other educators, says that that's how music should be learned too, with no structure, just being in the company of experts who will accept our mistakes with amusement, not anger, just as adults everywhere do with baby talk. They downplay the idea of talent and hard work and promote the philosophy of fun and opportunity. Just this by itself will enable us to become competent and excellence may follow if a learner desires it. I think our own guest today would probably agree that it was his enjoyment of playing his violin or what many teachers would call practice, which he did for fun, that first led to his lifelong love and highly successful career. This idea that music should be a hands-on learning experience, not a forced formal classroom affair, was famously expressed by the film director Laurie Anderson, who said, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. In other words, it doesn't make any sense. There can be no doubt, though, that we learn from each other too, and good teachers are always able to impart tips and suggestions to willing pupils. What about subtlety and evolution? Evolution is usually quite slow, but it does happen. For example, many musical instruments are rarely seen these days, having been unsurped by updated versions. It took Johann Sebastian Kahn 17 years to warm to the idea of the newfangled pianoforte, but over time it has almost entirely replaced harpist chords in performance music. Frequently, though, new variants become accepted, expanding the vocabulary. Just as with the adoption into the mainstream of poker or skateboarding slang language, so too with jazz, punk, hip-hop, grunge, techno, and so on. All of these new forms of performance have caused a stir, but perhaps much less so than the upheaval of orchestral music in the mid-18th century, from chamber to classical styles. Of course, back then, music performances like this were far from the reaches of all but the wealthy or titled, so the scandal must have gone largely unnoticed by ordinary folk. Does music seem like a code? That is to say, do the symbols written or the notes played have meaning? The answer I'm going to suggest is complicated because certainly the symbols have meaning as they indicate specific things, but whether the notes when played and sung have meaning by themselves is the subject of much debate. Many poets and fine artists believe that their work has no meaning at all, except in the minds of their audience. A poet might say, it's about whatever you think it's about. And the great Igor Stravinsky said, music is powerless to express anything at all. Our reaction to music, he would say, is absolutely subjective. That said, there are many common tropes that most people associate with 
ideas or emotions, but there will always be many people who do not have those associations. Just like language, then, what we understand in music is limited by what we know, what we've learned, our musical vocabulary. So it may be going too far to say that music expresses emotion, but I think we can safely say that it can have a direct link to emotion. Be that as it may, statistically speaking, most people can instantly associate moods from even short snippets. So is music a language? Stevie Wonder goes a little further in this song. So whether you have concluded that music is or isn't a language, some things are crystal clear. Music has power to touch deep emotions of joy and pain, to inspire and transform lives, and to communicate with others who are open to it. It seems apt to finish with a piece of music about music. Here is John Miles. Music was my first love. It will be my last Music of the future Music of the past Live without my music Would be impossible to do Isn't this world I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Thank you to Dr. Emmanuel Abraham for sharing some of his wonderful stories with us today and also for letting me see why it is that I'm so stubborn and hard to learn a foreign language. The explanation that David, our writer, gave above became so clear to me and I just had to laugh really. So Dr. Abraham, if you had not been here today, I wouldn't have looked at it uh, in this way. David certainly would not have come up with uh, all this research to um, guide us to thinking of music as a language in these ways. So thank you again, David. Don't forget listeners, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at colorful.com slash shows slash Delia or info at metaphoricallyspeaking.uk. We'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a comment on colourful.com. Or maybe you have a metaphor that you'd like us to research. If you miss us on Colourful, you can also send us a message and subscribe to our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. We depend on you to help us grow so we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. 
I'm hoping that you start to memorize what I'm saying because I say this nearly every week because it's something that I would like you to do to please let us know what you like so that we are not just entertaining what we think you like. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking, created by Delia Delore Productions, with original distribution by Colourful. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by David McDade, script supervisor Sabina Lauchopra Garcia, production assistance and social media graphics by Audra Osemwenke. The final programme was edited by Jonathan Woods, and social media videos by Ernie Deneve.